freedom of speech, freedom of expression, are we doing enough to protect it? Are we doing enough to uphold those values of freedom of speech and freedom of expression? And maybe sometimes we are, sometimes not so much. I think a lot of the debate around what's happening in the Middle East right now is highlighting some of these these pressures. Where, where is the line when it comes to hateful or harmful speech? What's the best way to counter hateful speech? Um, so I think all of these principles, you know, we, we would do well to remember as we try to navigate all of this. And there are going to be other issues that come up. I think that we'll do the same thing. Uh, if you're in Calgary next week, there's an interesting event happening Tuesday uh, at the uh, University of Calgary, the Institute for Liberal Studies, or liberalstudies.ca, uh, bringing our next guest to Calgary to talk about these issues. And she's certainly been at the forefront of many of these conversations. Former president of the American Civil Liberties Union. Uh, professor of law at Merritt at New York Law School and author of the book Hate, Why We Should Resist It with Free Speech, Not Censorship. Nadine Strassen uh, coming to Calgary next week and joining us uh, on the line here this morning. Uh, professor Strassen, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Oh, Rob, I hope we can be on a first-name basis. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for All right, I'll, I'll give you the formal uh, in the introduction. Uh, we'll go with uh, first names uh, henceforth. Okay. I, I did mention, you know, what's happening with Israel and Hamas, and we've seen some some really emotional, at times even arguably ugly protests happening in, in both Canadian and American cities. Where do some of these, these principles and points about free speech and how to counter hateful speech come into play in your view? Very, very important question, and the answers are somewhat different between the United States and Canada. Yeah. Let me start with the United States, because we are famously very speech-protective. In particular, we never allow government, including public universities, to punish speech solely because of disapproval of the content of the speech, the idea, the message, the viewpoint. So ugly as a viewpoint might be, hateful as it might be, even advocating violence as we've seen on some of these campus protests, that alone is never enough to justify censorship under U.S. law. However, any speech, including speech with a hateful or violent message, may be punished and should be punished if in certain contexts it causes specific, serious, imminent harm. That's often called the emergency principle, Rob. And sadly, a lot of the expression on campus has crossed that line. It has directly targeted particular individuals or groups of individuals and used threatening language that instills in them a reasonable fear that they're going to be subject to harm. That is considered a punishable true threat even under the speech protective U.S. law. Or if it directly targets a particular individual or group of individuals and bullies them or harasses them such that they are denied an equal educational opportunity, that is punishable harassment or intimidation and should be punished even under the speech protective U.S. law. Let me give one other example that's been very rampant on campuses in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And that is uh, what we call speech that violates content-neutral time, place, and manner restrictions. Again, that 
cardinal principle that you can't punish speech solely because you disagree with its viewpoint. But if the speech is uttered in a time or in a place where it is disrupting the usual functions, it doesn't matter what you say, that speech is illegal and should be punished. So students can't chant either pro or anti-Hamas or pro or anti-Israel statements or, for that matter, anything else in a math class or in a library. And so, unfortunately, we have seen a lot of examples of speech that uh, has been so extreme that it should be punished for completely consistent with this content neutrality central principle. So you mentioned, I mean, where, where it's it's a different kind of legal or constitutional reality in, in the U.S. Uh, than, than it is here in Canada. I mean, as much as our charter does speak to, you know, free speech rights, we do have further limitations on that. We have hate speech laws. You know, we actually had a situation recently where, you know, someone was charged with a crime for waving a flag uh, of um, a banned terrorist organization, right? It's one thing to raise money or support for a terrorist organization, but it's waving a flag or expressing support. So uh, some of these other issues that, that come into play, I mean, first of all, your thoughts, though, on, on how Canada deals with these issues. Yes, and I have had the opportunity to debate and discuss these issues with many Canadian individuals and organizations. And I know that, you know, even when the Canadian Supreme Court uh, upheld as against a, ch- a free speech challenge Canada's hate speech laws, there was a split vote. Uh, and I know many Canadians, including those who are active in the Canadian Council for Civil, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, mm-hmm. which is the counterpart of the American Civil Liberties Union. Um, There there are many Canadians who wish that your country would uh, enforce the same speech protective principles that govern in the United States. And I have to say in fairness, Rob, there are many on my side of the U.S.-Canada border who wish we would be more like Canada. So I think this is an issue where uh, understandably, those of us who are committed to equal human rights and full equality and dignity and diversity and inclusivity, these values that are so important in both of our countries, and are also committed to freedom of thought and speech and civil discourse, we may well have disagreements as to how best to advance all of those goals. Based on my many, many decades of activism, not only in the United States, but all over the world, uh, I remain convinced that robust freedom of speech in the long run is the safest guarantor, the most likely way that we are going to defeat discrimination and stereotyping and hatred and advance the goals of equal dignity and human rights. Uh, For this reason, Rob, what we're talking about are ideas and attitudes. You're not going to change somebody's hateful or discriminatory ideas by punishing them. You know, certainly putting putting them in jail, as has happened in Canada, happens in European countries, isn't going to change their minds. It's probably going to harden their attitudes and those of their supporters turns them into a martyr. Uh, So what we should do is we should educate, we should inform, we should persuade. Those strategies have demonstrably worked. Many former, even leaders of hateful, discriminatory organizations have seen the error of their ways and have changed their views as a result, not of shaming and shunning and punishing them, but as a result of being exposed to different perspectives in a compassionate, empathetic way. 
Right. And, and it gets to some of the issues you wrote about in your book that, you know, the, the best way to, to, to deal with hate speech is to, to counter it, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. And, you know, actually people who are in the business of um, anti anti-Semitism and anti-racism often say that it's counter to their efforts to try to suppress those voices that have different viewpoints, because then people say, oh, well, racism isn't really a problem, or anti-Semitism or Islamophobia doesn't really exist. Law enforcement officers uh, also object to censorship because they say it becomes harder. For example, if these white supremacist organizations are taken off major social media sites, it's harder to monitor their communications to make sure that they're not actually planning or plotting to engage in actual violence. So if we want to, you know, have the best hope of preventing the ideas from spreading and taking root, leading to actual discriminatory conduct, including violent conduct, the best thing is to let it out in the open, respond to it, and engage with it. One example, there's been debate in Canada about this, and other European countries have, have criminalized Holocaust denial. Canada has, has looked mm-hmm. at doing so as well. That's that's one of these tough issues where, you know, those who espouse these conspiracy theories, part of the conspiracy is that, well, you know, they, they want to shut me up because I'm, you know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm telling this this truth that people need to hear, right? That that's sort of argument. And, and we, But we just, at the same time, it's like we don't want to engage with those people. We want them to just go away. And it's kind of easy to justify laws that would prohibit that just because it seems so abhorrent to us. How do you deal with something like that? It's really the very same argument, Rob, and uh, the leading educators and historians of the Holocaust that I'm aware of, including Deborah Lipstadt, a famous American historian who's now uh, top official in the Biden administration and ambassador for anti-Semitism, they all strongly oppose outlawing so-called Holocaust denial or Holocaust distortion because they say the only way to keep the history alive Live and to, um, to to further investigate and disseminate information about the unprecedented amount of data and documentation for the Holocaust is to keep it on public consciousness. Uh, you know, uh, they say that when, when something is just taught as a rote recitation, uh, it doesn't really have any resonance with kids. And I've heard that about Holocaust education in Germany. But when it's a subject of ongoing debate and investigation and examination, then the reality of it is something that that sinks in much more strongly. So I say this as an educator that uh, debate and discussion is a more effective way to enliven the understanding than is just, you know, this is a fact that you have to memorize. I do wonder, too, I mean, sometimes it feels like some of these debates have some some political divide to them, that when it comes to hate speech, maybe there's there's more of an inclination on the political left to, to support censorship. If it's something, you know, that's seen as obscene, as maybe an example, more, more of an inclination on, on the right to support censorship. Have you often found that over the years in some of the debates that you've watched or participated in that you see those political divides? 
Rob, I always see political divides, but it really comes down to this, and I'm going to quote, many people have made this observation, that most people believe in freedom of speech for me, but not for thee, or people who agree with me. So whatever idea they see as hateful, uh, they think should be punished as hate speech. But I have seen, since I've witnessed calls for censorship all across the ideological spectrum, that no two people agree on what speech is hateful. So some people say that Black Lives Matter activism and advocacy is hate speech. And this has been said by very powerful officials in the United States, that it's Mm -hmm. hate speech against white people, it's hate speech against police officers. Other people say, hey, to call Black Lives Matter advocacy hate speech, that's hate speech. That's hate speech against black people. Uh, So it's an inherently subjective concept. And what that means is the government officials or university officials who are enforcing this concept, not surprisingly, are going to enforce it in a way that's favorable to them political perspectives or those of the powerful interest groups in their community, which is why I say that minority groups of every sort, whether you're talking about political dissenters or whether you're talking about ethnic or other demographic minorities, by definition have the biggest stake in reining in government power to punish so-called hate speech or any speech based on disfavor of its content. Well, further discussion on, on these and many other issues, as mentioned, it's next Tuesday, January 23rd, twelve fifteen, at the University of Calgary. It's, it's free and open to all. Uh, more details at uh, liberalstudies.ca. Nadine, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate the conversation. Oh, thank you so much, Rob. A pleasure.